Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Dishing with Digest. I'm Stephanie Sloan, Editorial Director, here with Mara Levinsky, Senior Editor. Hi, everyone. You know, Mara, it is so sad for me to begin this podcast on such a down note, but we have been rocked by the deaths of two beloved soap actors over the past week, and we must discuss. So first, it was All My Children original cast member, Ray McDonald, who played Joe Martin since day one. I mean, I know everyone associates Susan Lucci's Erica with the soap, but is there any real fan out there who doesn't have some connection to Dr. Joe? I mean, he was arguably the heart of Pine Valley, and it was such a sad day when we heard the news. But then, if that wasn't enough, the death of General Hospital Stuart Damon, who played Alan Quartermain for decades and played a large role during GH's glory days of the 80s, was announced, and that completely rocked the industry. Yes. Um... These are her two incredibly devastating losses and two men who made such an impact on their shows over the course of decades. But that is not the only thing that they have in common. And I'll tell you what else they share. It's that the people that Ray and Stuart worked with on their respective shows had their lives changed for the better by virtue of getting to share the stage with them and by virtue of knowing them on a personal level. And both of them were known to be possibly the funniest guys in their cast. And their co-stars have just the happiest, warmest memories of both Ray and Stuart and have been truly gutted by, uh, by their losses. You know, I have, um, I've basically gone through a box of tissues this week from the conversations that I have had preparing the tributes to them that we'll have in an upcoming issue. Uh, I had the, I will say, bittersweet pleasure under the circumstances of connecting with Stuart Damon's son, Christopher, who, despite how fresh his grief is, was kind enough to speak to me about his dad. And one thing he really wanted to communicate about his father was how much Stuart loved being Alan Quartermain. He loved the fans. He loved being loved by the fans. He was so happy to have uh, to have had such a long and fulfilling run on General Hospital. Uh, I also spoke to Steve Burton, who was cast as Stewart's on-screen son, Jason, back in the early 90s, and said that Stewart had an enormous impact on him, both personally and professionally. Um, but Steve said to me that what he wanted everyone to know is that Stewart was so sweet so selfless, so caring, and such a great husband and father, and that he was everything that Steve wanted to be as a man. I also spoke uh, to Michael E. Knight, who plays Martin on GH, but spent decades on All My Children playing Ray's adopted son, Tad. Very similar story there. He told me that Ray 
just had a huge impact on him as a person. And then he considers himself so very lucky to have had Ray uh, essentially as a second father. And, you know, both of these actors were just so beloved as people. And of course, we all loved what they did as actors and their legacy is indelible. I mean, I know you've been working so hard on those tributes and they will for sure be great reads. You know, what I thought was so interesting in the age of social media was a revisit of Stewart's much publicized shocking exit from the show in 2007. Um, you know, I remember how much of a gut punch that was when he was let go. And, you know, one of the show's former writers, Michelle Valjean, took to Twitter to defend the show's then head writer, Robert Guza, making it clear that the decision was not his. Now, that is really only something that could happen in 2021, because trust, when that story was unfolding, there wasn't anyone going on the record, nor was there Twitter to explain what was happening. But I remember the idea of getting rid of Alan Quartermain was just a head-scratcher, and really just another bad decision in the long history of bad decisions, and certainly undervalued all that Stewart meant to the show, to its fans, and to the industry. You know, it's a hard line because death is a part of life, and for impactful stories to happen and characters to move forward, sacrifices have to be made. But when you start chipping away at core families, it is just hard to recover. I mean, the cues never really bounced back from that in quite the same way. Absolutely not. And I don't think that there is a General Hospital fan on the planet who wouldn't trade whatever, you know, short-term impact Alan's death had in a heartbeat to have all of the untold Alan stories that could have been told, told. Uh, I mean, we had Alan's death on the cover of the magazine just a few months back when we wrote about characters who never should have been killed off. I think it's like a gold standard example of that. And, you know, trying to repopulate the Quartermain Mansion has been a challenge for every head writer the show has had since then. Um, you know, Alan died sh uh, shortly before Emily did. I think it was the right decision to, to uh, kill Edward when his portrayer, John Engel, passed away in 2012. But I don't know that it was the right decision to kill AJ in 2014, you know, but we do know uh, on, on, the, on the, I guess, a somewhat happier note that there is a big story for the Quartermains coming up right around the corner. And I am sure we'll be talking about that more in the weeks to come. Which makes me so happy and I'm sure will be welcome news to many GH fans as well. You know, I'm sure like us, many people listening right now are long-term viewers of soaps. They want to see the characters they loved from the start and still love now. You know, it's impossible to overstate how important that is to the viewer's experience and, frankly, holding on to those core viewers, because if you're not going to write stories for people they want to see, you know, why should they watch? Where's the payoff for the loyalty? Now, a twist on that is when a new couple becomes so popular to a show that it gets the fans fired up, and I could certainly point to Days' Ben and Sierra as an example of that as well as Young and Restless's Kyle and Summer as another. And, you know, we're reporting in the new issue that the actors who play Skyle, Michael Mueller and Hunter King, are rumored to be exiting the canvas because their contract negotiations with the show came to a halt. You know, we'll see how that story continues to unfold. But in the immortal words of Julia Roberts in Pretty Woman when she was in that dress shop, big mistake. Huh, indeed. Uh, I personally think that, you know, any show lucky enough to hit a chord with viewers where a 20-something new pairing is concerned should move heaven and earth uh, to hang on to them, you know, because it is a rarity and it's a very important commodity. Uh, but speaking of payoff for long-term fans, 
Aaron D. Spears, who has been a supporting player on BME since he joined the show in 2009, has recently stepped into the spotlight as Justin goes to extremes to become the big cheese at Spencer Publications. And I am so excited to get to know Aaron, who is our guest today, and to hear what he has to say about Justin's extracurricular activities. Well, me too. So let's check in with him and see how it's all going. Hi, Aaron. What's happening? How you doing? Man, I'm good. I stay good. I'm breathing. I'm good. <laughs> good <That's> attitude. Good. <laughs> well, we're excited to talk to you. We haven't had you on the podcast yet. And of course, um, Justin's story is really heating up. So we have a lot to talk about today. But <laughs> let's good. go back to the beginning. You hail from Washington, D.C. So tell us what it was like growing up there and what kind of kid you were. The DMV, as we call it. <laughs> that stands for the District of Columbia, Maryland, and Virginia. So it's this little triangle that's very close. Um, so just to kind of give you an idea of where I grew up. Literally, uh, about less than a mile down the street, you can literally just see the next stoplight is Washington, D.C. And then if you go across the bridge, which is, I shot, I'm in Virginia. So that's where the DMV comes from, DC, Maryland, Virginia. Uh, you know, it was, it was, it's competitive, but in a, in a good, beautiful way. Like, you know, kind of LA, Los Angeles has its, has its gangs and, you know, you're a cripple of blood. It wasn't per se like that, but you had to be on your P's and Q's as an individual. So for the group that I grew up around, everything was competitive, not just grades, the, the gear you wore, and, and we had this thing what we called, it was called riding. So like if, for instance, I have these glasses and then somebody bought the same glasses. Man, come on, man. Why are you riding on me, bro? Why, why you couldn't get like the, the blue ones or the red ones? It was like, like, like you're the only person that could buy those pair of glasses. It was crazy. So we had that dynamic, but that dynamic was also what created, what pushed me to, to always be competitive, whether we were bowling, skating, uh, flipping pennies, marbles, basketball, track and field, football, all of which we did, you know, when kids went outside and played, as opposed to video games. We did that too, but we would hit the park. It just, for me, established a very uh, competitive nature. And in the midst of that, I was like that kid that didn't curse. I was a nice guy, you know, and I had a, I was moody. I had a temper, so if you push the button, I wouldn't back down, but I wasn't that guy that was going to start the fight, but I also wasn't that guy that was going to back down from the fight. So I had a very interesting childhood. I, to sum it up, I'd say this. I could have tea with the president and feel just as comfortable as kicking it with the homies on the corner. I literally had that dichotomy, that duality, because all of my classes were tag classes, so none of the people I ran with were in my classes but when I left those classes none of the people in my classes I ran with so I had that that interesting challenge of always being challenged when I came around my friends so to speak because all oh, you, you hanging out with the smart kids you thank you this you thank you that and always kind of testing me um I got into a lot of fights just because everyone wanted to test me and so I wasn't a sucker, but I didn't know how to fight it at first. But because so many people picked on me, I became like the sharpest kid in the neighborhood <laughs> because I always got tested and my hands got really good. So 
man, I wouldn't change it. It was, it's a friendships that I still have to this day. Met at five years old and what? We're cranking off almost 50 and we're still friends. So I had, I liked the way I, I was brought up. I think it gave me respect for both sides of the fence. Well, you went to school at the University of Delaware and majored in computer science and mathematics. I think the subjects I personally am most intimidated <laughs> by. <laughs> the ones you avoided, right? <laughs> right, exactly. So you were also a very promising athlete who almost went into the NFL, but you just so happened to discover your passion for acting along the way. So tell us about how performing came into the mix and about uh, your decision to pursue it professionally. It was, uh, it literally was on a whim. I wasn't even thinking about acting. Yeah, I always had people, oh, you should do this, you should do that. But you know, I wasn't thinking about that. I was playing sports. And my speech teacher was also the play production teacher, or as most people called him, the theater teacher, but it was called play production. And I missed the paper. And he would not allow me to make the paper up. And I was like, dude, come on, man. I was at a football game. Like, come on, just give me the paper. He was like, nope. You're always acting a fool in class. You're going to come do this play. I was like, dude, I do not want to do a dumb play. Like, just give me the paper. Nope. You got to come to the play. I said, all right, I'll do the play. And that one little small role he gave me turned into like six little roles. And I always, I didn't ask him this question until, I mean, years later, maybe 10 to 15 years later. I came, I did the play, and I remember always being on stage and, and practicing, and he would never direct me. And I used to be like, man, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just doing whatever, you know, kind of I feel through these words that you're giving me and this dumb play that I don't want to do. And then all of a sudden, it just began to click. And I had that same feeling that sports gave me. And I felt like, hmm, I could do this. Or at least it feels comfortable. At least it makes me want to. I feel that same desire and passion that sports gives me without beating up my body. Because you're only as good as your last play, regardless of what they tell you. They love you one moment, and the minute you get hurt and they can't monetize you, you're out the window. So I began to realize that at an early age. And this acting thing just kind of, man, it bit the hell out of me. And I was like, oh, Lord, that's a hell of a mosquito bite. <laughs> <laughs> Next thing I knew, I was two weeks from graduating, telling everybody I turned down five NFL contracts. Oh, man, I cried like a baby, man. That was a childhood dream. And like, what? I just kind of was like, what are you doing? But my body was like, no, do it. And it was like, I don't know if I want to get banged up anymore. I've been rolling with you for what? How many years now? Bruh, can I get a break? You know, you can do this acting thing. Maybe you should go do that. You make money there too. And man, I just kind of went for it. Came home, told my parents, I'm out. I left, two weeks notice. Um, that that story is, is long in and of itself. But with $77 in, in my pocket, um, at the airport, Dad just handed it to me. Speaking of, it's my dad's birthday today. Happy birthday, Dad! In case this is, uh, you know, yes, indeed. And I just I went for it, and it just happened to work out. I had the feeling of this: everything that I've tried in my life prior to worked out. So why wouldn't this? I didn't quite understand the the trajectory, the the hardship. I didn't understand it. As far as I'm concerned, hey, I'm me. 
I accomplish everything. I'm indestructible. You can't stop me. Who are you to tell me what I can't do? And I just went for it. And luckily it worked out. <laughs> well, so obviously you made the move to LA. Uh, what was that like? And how did you go about breaking into the business? I um, arrived. Ooh, I went through it. I stayed in a, a home that was shared by like six different people. Literally next door, the people who own the house. Incest. They had 10 children. The house that I stayed in had a minimum of 30 dogs. They breeded the dogs. The dogs were in fish tanks all around the living room. I was sharing that, and then the other people living there, one lady was schizophrenic, one person was on uppers, another person, were, person was on downers, and there was one same person that lived in the house. And it ironically just happened to be another black dude. So I'm like, dude, we're the two black dudes. Like, oh my God, was it just get me through this? And and I was I was really struggling. I didn't have a phone. Um, luckily I had a place to stay um eventually. But for a little while, about a good 24 hours to 48 hours, I was homeless. And I just refused to go home because I didn't move all of my stuff out of here out here for nothing. And that was a story in and of itself. I mean, it's so, this story is, is you know, I don't know how much time you guys have, but I mean, it's, it's literally arriving at the airport, thinking you can bring all the luggage that you have, realizing you can only bring two pieces, grabbing whatever two pieces you wanted, getting to California, finding out you only have like slacks and, and sports coats, no underwear, no socks, no toothbrush. I grabbed the wrong two bags. Then I spent $77 my father gave me to ship the rest of my stuff out here to live with the person that I went to college with to find out he can't tough it out. He moves back to DC and I'm left. Like I'm not going home. I don't have a place to live. That's how I ended up in the place with the six people and schizophrenic and the whole nine. Um, didn't have a job, was homeless, worked at Sears, slinging tires and batteries. And uh, all of that time I just, kept submitting myself through what at that time was backstage and drama law. So I had a motorcycle and that was my car. And I used to drive all the way from Fullerton in Orange County, all the way to Hollywood to get the backstage drama law or backstage West drama law is what it was, uh, what it is now. I think it was, they were separate at that time. Backstage was one and then drama law was another one. And I would just submit myself, submit, submit. And luckily the first four projects I submitted for, I got. And one of them was a major motion picture that ended up falling through at the last minute. But I think that helped my confidence and feeling like I could do it. They told me it was going to be hard. I'm like, I've been out here like a month. I booked four projects. What are you talking about? Independent, you know, there be it. But that one was a major project. And that kind of just transitioned into me uh, having Betty Bridges manage me, which was Todd Bridges' mother's from, mother from a different strokes. Um, getting my first agent, 20th Century, I think it was 20th Century Fox artist, and I'm no longer around, and just start auditioning, and just just going, I didn't even take classes at that time, I was just going off of like gut instinct, and you can't tell me what I can't do, and it just kept working out, you know, I had a lot of downs, but it just kept at it, kept at it, kept at it, substitute teacher, bartender, uh, a remodel closets, a cut hair, all of these things until I finally got the job on B&B to let all of those jobs go 
thinking that I'm signing a three-year contract to find out their cycles. Oh, why do you mean it's a cycle? A cycle of what? I just signed a three-year contract. What are you talking about? Well, you're on a 13-week cycle. Well, what does that mean? That means every 13 weeks they can decide if they're going to rehire you or not. Oh, my God, stop playing. They, rehi- they, they rehired me the first 13 weeks. Second 13 weeks was recurring. So then that taught me how to juggle and contracts and what, how to ask for things because they're not going to offer it. So all of this was a learning, a learning curve that was just massive. And I got five kids. Like, man, y'all messing with my money, honey. How do I, how am I supposed to know all of this? And just, wow, man, just figuring it out, man. I have been so up and down with being, being around. I could have been gone a long time ago, but we've both stuck with each other through thick and thin. And here we are, you know? Mm-hmm. All right. Well, somewhere in the mix of all of this, you actually made your daytime debut. I think your first television credit uh, in 1997, as Officer Washington on Sunset Beach. So hey, you've been really doing your homework, girl. Go yourself. So tell us what you remember about your first soap opera experience on Sunset Beach. Man, I was like blazed to the point of I couldn't believe the pace. I was like, how are you supposed to learn all of this in that little bit of time? And wait a minute, aren't we going to rehearse that again? Like, we only went over that one time. And you're about to shoot. Like, oh, boy. That was one hell of an experience. Um, I came in as an under five. And I just, just, oh, man, just do your best. Do your best. Remember your lines. Remember your lines. And they kept calling me back. Every day would call me back. He kept calling me back. And then that's how I continued to stay on that show. And then one day, uh, you know, you get a new director every day. Well, just about every show. And he didn't like the way I was delivering a line. And I thought I was delivering it the way that he wanted me to. And I guess when I responded, he felt like I had a little attitude. And I was like, no. But then when I looked at it back, I was like, you know what? I see where he could see that. You know, my head was a little tilted to the side. You know, I was like, okay, you probably had a little edge on that line right there, buddy. You know what I'm saying? You didn't, you took the direction, but you took the direction with a little bit of, a little stank, if you will. And that taught me like, hmm, you gotta be careful of your, what, what my, what I learned from this guy that I did the play with in college, your trans contextuals. What is your body transmitting that your mouth isn't? And so my body was transmitting attitude, though my mouth wasn't. And I got fired. Damn, I was mad. <laughs> I was like, what the fuck you mean I'm fired? Like, what? Man, I couldn't believe it. I was so pissed, man. Because I'm like super competitive. They called my agent, and I was like, what did I do? And they said, the director said you had a bit of attitude. And I was like, no. And then, like I say, I watched it. I was like, "Mm." all right, okay. Lesson learned, check mark, won't do that again. And that, from that day forward, I was like, man, I'm going to make sure everybody liked me. There's not going to be no one. I'm not going to be fake. I'm going to still be me. B&B could have literally hated me of all the stuff we have been through. I could have literally had a 
a director come to me the other day and was really happy about the work that we've been able to do and like man i don't know why they haven't been using you all this time etc cetera, etc cetera. and i said you know what honestly i know i was brought here for something else something more and it just so happened to transpire this way for whatever reason right so are you going to pout or are you going to make lemonade out of the limits so i decided to make lemonades out of the limit limits and she was like "Woo." You're a better person than me because I'd have been whining and kicking and screaming. I'm like, yeah, I as a black man can't walk up in there and do that. And then I'm fresh off of what? No soap, really. That's probably not a good look. Probably wouldn't have went over well. I'm just going to make these lemons and I'm going to make everybody like me. And I'm going to make everybody love me, but I'm going to be me. I'm not going to be fake, but I learned that lesson. I'm not going to do that again. So if I can just hang around long enough, oh, I'll prove myself. I'm just waiting for you to give me the opportunity. And I honestly told her, I said, every other show that I work on, I'm pretty much front and center. This is the only show that doesn't use me in that format. So, I mean, what, what is there to be mad about? Maybe that's just the character and how he played out and what he's supposed to be. Okay, cool. That's what you're asking from me on this project. And until that changes, that's just what I'll be. And I'll show up as that. And I'll check any anger, animosity, or ego at the door. Just do the job and go home and shut your mouth. And be pleasant. And be on time. And know your lines. How about that? Instead of complaining. Because it could be no job. You could be sitting your ass at home. How about that? Well, in 2004, you were cast on General Hospital as another cop, Officer Watkins. So what was that experience like for you? General Hospital was twice the speed of Sunset Beach. That's what that was. I was that that it, it was like levels, levels to the game. I remember coming in and the guy that I was working opposite, I cannot think of that dude's name. But man, I was like, man, he's good. And I was like, man, they just gave him some new lines. And so how is he incorporating those new lines into what we already have to say? That was already enough. So how are you interjecting and or cutting and or pacing, you know, um, adding or taking away lines and remembering still all the things they've asked you to do, all of the positions they're asking us to land, to turn out this way, and then hold. You know how soaps, you got to hold. You know, you only hold on soaps. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But that, for me, that was new. I'm like, what do you mean hold? Like, dude, I wouldn't do that in real life. What am I standing here for? Why am I still looking at the camera and at the I wouldn't do that in real life. But that's how soaps are. So I had I learned all of that there. Not that it wasn't there on Sunset Beach, but it just kind of was like it was elevated on General Hospital. And so once again, another notch on the belt, another lesson learned in the game called Hollywood. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, continuing with the cop theme, uh, in 2006, you appeared opposite uh, Brad Pitt, Kate Blanchett in the multi-Oscar-nominated film Babel. Yeah. Uh, what stands out to you about filming that project, which had to have been a world away from yes. these other projects we've been talking about? Totally a world away. Um, interesting process. It was a cattle call. Last, it last minute cattle call. They, I mean, it was so many freaking people at that audition. And I remember going in and I guess they already kind of had a look that they were looking for. And I remember going in and auditioning and I try to be as observant as possible when I go into an audition. And I remember glancing over to the table and I saw my picture 
on a stack of pictures, but my picture was on top of the stack. So I'm like, maybe that's just because I'm up next, but the stack that it's on top of isn't as big as the stack that's laid around the desk. So I'm like, huh, okay, cool. So maybe I just need to come in and deliver. Maybe I look the way they want me to look, right? So I'm like, all right. Went in, did my thing, got home. Before I got home, hey, they're interested. By the time I got home, you have the job. By the time I got in the door good, you need to pack your clothes. By the time I pack my clothes, here's your flight airline information. Next thing I know, I'm on a flight. I fly red eye to Mexico, land, drive about two, three hours into the Puerto Penasco, three hours inland, got out the ride, taxi, cab, whatever it was I was riding in, put my bags down, got back in the vehicle, and drove straight to set. My God. Gave me my lines in the van to set, learned the lines, and next thing I know, I'm on set with Brad Pitt, Kate Blanchett, Clifton Collins Jr. And I hope you're ready because we're shooting and you're up next. What? <laughs> Man, you talk about being ready, how they say stay ready so you don't have to get ready. That was a prime example of that. And, and, and then we're shooting at night. So I go in at 6 p.m., I get off at 6 a.m. And I'm so intrigued with the, the environment. I want to sightsee. I want to, it's, it's this place I called Rodeo Drive. At the time, it's not Rodeo Drive, but it reminded me of live there in the back. And then in the front, they, they showcased all of their artwork, whether it was sculptures or paintings. And it was just so magnificent. I love people and cultures. And it was just so full of culture. And being the backdrop is like 12, literally, if not 20 high rises. It's, a, it's, it's becoming Americanized in the background. But these people are still holding on to their culture still holding on to the piece of land that they know as home. And I just found that so fascinating. So I, oh my God, I was burning the midnight oil up during the day, experiencing all of that, and then reporting the set at like 6 p.m. at night of the pass out. So sleepy, I don't know what to do with myself. Well, it was in 2009 that you did land the part of Justin Barber on Bold and Beautiful. So tell us about that and what you remember about getting the role. I remember riding up the elevator. I remember walking before I got to the elevator. I remember coming into CBS. I remember looking at the pictures on the wall. I still do the same thing every day when I walk in. I still look at the pictures on the wall. I don't know why. That's so intriguing to me. Um, you, get, you get to the elevators. And I remember riding the elevator up. And I remember reading. And it was a pre-read. I read with Christy Dooley. And she was like, can you wait around? I was like, yeah, I can wait around. And so they gave me another time to come back same day. And then that second ride up the elevator was with one of the executive producers or supervising producer, I think she was at that time, a lady by the name of Rhonda Friedman. I had no clue who she was, but another lesson. Imagine, imagine if I had gotten in the elevator with attitude or you know how you treat some people as whatever because you don't know who they are or they're minuscule or they're just know, setting the table. It's just the gardener. Just another lady in the elevator. And she introduced herself. We went, we were just talking. Blah, 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 blah. And then she said, well, what's your name? And then I told her. She was like, oh, so you're the guy auditioning for her? at the time. Justin. I was like, yeah. 
She was like, and then she just like, they have so many plans for you. You're supposed to be doing this. You're going to be related to people over wine art. You're going to be, you know, you got a son. And she's just running off all of this stuff. And I'm just like, whoa, what if I had been an a-hole? I would have been, that would have been the a-hole to the wrong person. <laughs> and I got, up, got upstairs and I had to audition against two people. Well, there were more people up for the part. In terms, I think it was three people up for the part. But I had an audition with Jennifer Garris and I had an audition with Texas Battle. And they were two separate auditions. I had two separate scenes. So the first scene, I went in and I had to read with Donna, or Jennifer Garris. And we read. And just right off the gate, I felt like we had pretty good chemistry. She was just cool. You know, I was like, huh, this is, this is cool. You know, then Texas came in. And I read with Texas. And that just kind of felt right, right? And prior to, I think right after that, I saw Texas in the, talk, in the hallway and he was just telling me, yo, man, be yourself. You did good. You know, they asked us a couple of questions afterwards. Who, we, it said, and we didn't talk about this, but who did we kind of like feel that vibe with? And, and ironically, both of them picked me. So I was happy for that, but that doesn't mean anything in this industry. You know, and I felt like Brad and I had a good connection in the room because we came in and it was just Brad. And I think it was the casting director and then Jennifer and then Brad, casting director, and then Texas. But we connected as men. We kind of just talked about everything but what we were getting ready to do. You know, hey, you got kids? Oh, I got kids too. Your son does, oh, my son does, my wife, my daughter, you know. And it was just like, oh, you like cars? I like cars. It was kind of that kind of thing. And then I read, and then there was good chemistry there with Jennifer. We just connected, and then I read with Texas, and it was good energy and connection there. And next thing you know, I had the job. And that whole whirlwind of, what's that thing, a, like a screen test. You have the job, and they've given you the contract, but we're going to check with CBS and the ratings and kind of see how you're doing, buddy, and if you're going to stay. And you got to get a certain score. And I remember I got a good high score. And it was like, man, that was like the second high score we've ever had. I'm like, really? Like, okay, hey, let's go. And everybody was really nice and warm and welcoming and, and greeting me. And it made me, it took that extra pressure off by people being genuinely nice. It didn't feel fake nice. It didn't feel Hollywood nice. It felt, hey, we've been doing this. We make a living at this. <laughs> We're pros. Welcome to the playground. Let's make some sandcastles. I'm like, hey, I like sandcastles. Let's go. <laughs> yeah. Well, Justin was, was introduced uh, as lawyer and friend to Bill Spencer, played by Don Diamond. So tell us about, I feel like that's like your longest running relationship on, on the show, really. Tell us about your real life relationship with Don, both as actors and, you know, when the cameras aren't rolling, what your dynamic is like. When the cameras aren't rolling, me and Don are some complete fools. We, we act, we are, oh boy, you talk about a handful on set. You know when we're on set, it's good and loud. You don't hear Don come in with his big mouth, you hear me coming in with mine. One of the two. We just, I don't know. It's like, man, look, we're at work. Can we have fun? You know, we're kind of like the bad boys of B&B. I mean, yeah, you know, what can we really do that's so bad? And we're both jokesters, and we both cut up, and he messes and picks on me all the time, and I mess and pick with him all the time. 
ironically, we've connected very seldom outside of the set. Probably because between the two of us, we have 11 kids. Exactly. So we, yeah, we literally have a football team ourselves. You know, you put us two together, we don't need any sponsorship. We've got, it. you know, you need a team, we got you. And I think because of that, we're so busy. But when we see each other, it's as if we hang out all the time. I did get a chance uh, to go to one of his son's football games. We had a great time, went out to dinner afterwards. I told him during COVID, I almost went over his house during COVID. Because I said, man, you got a gym at your house, don't you? He was like, yeah. I said, man, I'm about to come over there and work out, bro. He was like, well, come on over there. I was like, all right, man, I got my, you know, I'm, I got tested. I'm good. You know, but are you good? And I get, yeah, I'm good. So I said, okay, I'm coming over there. Do you need to be there or do I have to get special permission? You know, Don, DMI. I call him Didi. I need special permission. So we almost hooked up then. But we just have a great person, great relationship. You know, I understood my dynamic coming in. I knew what it was supposed to be, and I knew it didn't turn out to be that. And I always say, I think you have to know your place and play it correctly. Um, I understand I, I have an A personality. Don has an A personality. So if he's going to be Batman, I don't remember it. Be, I don't remember it being called Batman and Batman. <laughs> it's Batman and Robin. So are you going to, you know, play Robin or are you going to try to front and be Batman and possibly screw up the whole dynamic of what it is now? So I said, all right, cool. I'll play Robin. I'll be Robin. I know I'm Batman, but I'm cool. I'll be Robin. And I am going to respect the fact that you have umpteen years in the game over me in this meeting. How about just sponge and learn from that? How about take all of it in and see where that takes you as opposed to trying to overpower, trying to make it like a Batman Robin, meaning you're turning Robin into kind of a Batman. Robin's a little Batman-ish. No, <laughs> just let Robin be Robin, you know, and just learn and listen and pay attention. Uh, it's been it's been amazing, man. The thing that I don't understand is that I see every, I don't understand award shows and and how that works. But all I know is everybody around Don wins a trophy. So I told him, I said, dude, what the hell you do? You know, man, who you done pissed off? Whose wife you done screwed? Like, what's up? You know, because bro, you're like ridiculously talented, and all the stuff that he does on the show, all of the rewrites, all of the innuendos. Just certain little things, man. That dude's a pro, man. He knows his stuff. That's my guy, man. You know what I'm saying? I'm like, man, I like me some Don, man. I love me some Don, man. I'm just like, come on, man. Like, what's, what's that about? Why he, Why is he not getting any trophies? Why is he not being nominated? I know it's at the point that he's probably not even submitting anymore. But I'm like, that's some BS, bro. You get it in every year, year after year. Come on. So that's my dude, man. I like Don. Mm -hmm. If I did, I would tell you that too. Because <laughs> you're not fake. We know that. Um, <laughs> now, as you mentioned, you have done projects while doing B&B. &B. From 2013 to 15, you played, I think it's fair to say, the groundbreaking role of Mark on Being Mary Jane. So your character went in a direction that you didn't expect when you were cast. Um, over the course of your run, it was real that Mark was gay. He ultimately was outed publicly. But first things first, tell us about your co-star on the project, Gabrielle Union. Gabrielle Union is a person 
that I had to understand. She gave me the understanding of the bigger picture, like it being beyond what is physically going on right now between you and I. Like you and I are on this show called Being Mary Jane. And on the show, you're my best friend, right? But that doesn't mean we have to be best friends, okay? <laughs> when it's action, we're best friends. When we're not, I don't know you. And you don't know me. And you don't understand or know what's going on in my life. She, I got, I have so much, I learned to have so much respect for her. Um, man, I began to understand everything she was going through at the time of shooting, being the lead of a show, having to carry the show, having to report back to the network, having other shows come in while you're shooting this show, having the responsibility of carrying all of this on your shoulders and then still delivering, and then your wife, and then your girlfriend, and then you're you know, a mom or stepmom. It was, man, I just, I didn't get it at first. I didn't get it the first two seasons. By the third season, man, I had to pull that girl aside. I said, you know what? You a bad mother. Yo, I respect the hell out of you. I get it now. I see what you're going through with this network. Goodness gracious. I see what you're going through and carrying the show. I see what you're fighting for behind the scenes that you keep signing. And that may twist your mood for the day. And it's not personal. It has nothing to do with me. You don't know. You don't know me. I don't know you. We're getting paid to be best friends, right? So when it's action, we need to look like we're best friends, right? We could could not stand each other when it's cut. And it's so many shows that have that dynamic. And so I begin to internalize all that I was learning in front of her, and and not necessarily judging what was in front of me and how the process was going because I don't know what's going on behind the scenes. By season three, I was like, man, Gab, you the shit. Straight up. You know what I'm saying? You a black woman doing this thing, girl, man, girl, you the shit. Hats off. Like, do your thing. I'm always, I'm always going to support her, man. I'm always going to be down for Gab, man. Gab is the bomb. Gab, Gab puts in work. Gab works. Gabrielle Union can act. Like, straight up straight up she can act and she has a, a memory like it's insane um i have a good memory she has a good memory another person that has a really good memory is james spader ridiculous memory like to the point them those two are almost like uh photo photogenic or photographic whatever, whatever that word is memory like like that and see everything everything happens for a reason had I not done soaps, I don't know if I would have been ready for that. Soaps, if you could do soaps, you could do anything. I don't care what it is. That I'm not, I'm not pissing on acting class. The hell with acting class if you're on the soap. So everybody, oh, you don't need to be on the soap. Don't do man, go do the soap. If you can handle that pace and those pages and that dialogue and still show up and show out, you a bad mother. Watch your mouth. <laughs> Well, I'm curious to know what your experience was, you know, playing out the arc of Mark's outing and the audience's reception to it. And I, I've read some interviews that you did at the time in like big deal publications and you spoke so eloquently about your determination and just commitment to like finding the humanity in the character. And you really 
you know, grabbed a hold of the audience. Yeah, you have to. I mean, don't approach a character judging you for what your possible outside circumstances that have been brought upon you by society that now have shaped your judgmental viewpoint on a person that may be gay. First and foremost, do you know any gay people? And what is your relationship with them? Are they human or are they aliens? Do they bleed? Do they eat? What makes them tick? So for me, it was a, a personal decision. Mm -hmm. You also did Moonlight a bit in daytime from 2016 to 17. You appeared on Days as Lieutenant Reigns, the boss of Sean and JJ, which reunited you with Brandon Beamer, Days of Sean, who had played Owen on B&B. &B. So tell us about your Days in Salem. Days in Salem were, were magnificent. I had a great time doing Days because it was the flip side of Justin, right, from a soap opera's perspective. And I feel like, honestly, that was the first time that outside of my first audition and my like storyline with Donna and you know played by Harris, that bold and beautiful started to pay attention. It was like, oh, well, because they were actually actually writing for me. And they were actually giving me storyline. And they actually I, I asked, even though I didn't have to, I always have asked the bold and the beautiful, um, like for permission or at least let them know when I'm doing something. Just because it's like it's like family. I know I'm not under contract. I know. But, man, I don't want you to find out by clicking on the TV. Like, that ain't cool, man. You know what I'm saying? Like, nah, man. Or you hear from somebody else, hey, you know Aaron's on date? Nah, man, I'm going to you know, call him up. Hey, Eva, look, this is what's going down. I'm about to go on days. I know that's probably a competitor. I know I'm not under contract. I know I don't have to tell you. I know. But I'd rather you hear from me and to hear it or watch it and let those feelings that are evoked affect our relationship. So I told them, and they were like, cool. I mean, there wasn't nothing they could say anyway, to be honest, if you want to be like, you know, because I wasn't on, under contract. But that's the level of respect that I have for Brad and even the whole team, right? So I went, I did it. And then days, you know, that didn't, wasn't going to, that was going to be a one-time character. I was going to go on. I was supposed to go on as a day player. And that was it. What it really was was a screen test. So let me see what's up with this character, right? I went on. I did my thing. And they liked me. And then they just kept writing and kept writing. And next thing I know, I'm on contract. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. And I'm like, whoa. And they're giving me major storyline. And I'm a bad guy. So, blessedly, Days fans were accepting. He was a butthole. Don't get me wrong. He was a butthole. But it started to cause a stir in daytime, a little something, something, right? So then, of course, B&B, they're smart now. Yeah, if you're playing outside of the box and you're doing some things outside of the box, guess what we're about to do? Invite you back into the box. Come on home. You're doing great. You're getting attention. And B&B is good at that. They, pay they let you go outside of the box and create noise. Smart. It's marketing. Whether it's good noise, bad noise, you're creating noise. If I bring you onto the show, guess what? You're going to bring that noise with you. So, lo and behold, when days was over, next thing I know, coming back to Bold and the Beautiful. And who wants to have a character to go somewhere else to shine and to be like a competitive, a competing 
not only network, but also soap opera. And so I felt like they began to pay attention there, right? They started writing a, a little bit, doing a little bit here and there, you know, but it brought me back home that amount of attention. Let's get into some recent events on B&B, &B. Aaron. Uh, there is, as I'm sure you're aware, a lot of interest in what has been going on with Justin. Uh, the turn he has taken, the hostage he has taken, and uh, people want to know your take on all of it. Um, so first, just tell us generally like what it means to you that so many people in the audience were really rooting for a big Justin story, and we at Sub Opera Digest were doing the same. Always grateful, always ridiculously grateful, always humbling. Surprised, only reason I'm gonna say surprised, no, is because they've been asking for it for so freaking long, it's ridiculous. I'm having a blast, I'm always happy on set. I don't think you can ask anybody 11 years they ever seen me upset or mad on set. And I don't get tired, I don't know what that is. As long as I'm working, I'm just, but once I'm done and I sit down in that, on that couch in the uh, dressing room, woo, sometimes I'm beat. But I've noticed as of late, because I've been working so much either on B&B or, &B or other things, I don't even get tired anymore doing that. It's just, man, I like doing what I do, man. And I love people and cultures. So I'm good, man. I'm having a blast. Come on, bring it. Let's go. <laughs> Well, what was your reaction to seeing what they were going to do with Justin, that he was sort of taking the reins here at Spencer and kind of giving Bill some payback? Well, honestly, they don't tell me. They don't tell me nothing. I find out when I get the script. They didn't pull me aside and say, hey, Aaron, we got this plan. I just, okay, I get the script. I read the script. Oh, that's what I'm doing. Okay, cool. And you don't get the script usually until the Friday before the week you're gonna shoot it. So I had no idea what I was doing. Everybody around me knew what I was doing before I knew what I was doing. So they're coming up to me having these conversations I'm like, dude, I don't have a clue what you're talking about. I don't, I don't know the storyline. Oh, you don't know? And I'm just like, nah, I don't know. Well, ah. then they're, they're like complex because like, oh, can I tell them or can I not tell them? Just seeing that conflict on people's faces was hilarious. So I'm like, dude, you don't have to tell me. Like, it is what it is. It's whatever, bro. Whatever they write, it's what I'm going to bring. So if it's good, if it's bad, it's indifferent. You know, I'm just happy I'm acting. I'm happy we're writing. So let's go. And so it, I never knew, you know, until I get the scripts. Like, I don't have a clue. We shot up to a certain point, and it's some, it's some more shit that's about to drop that I have no clue about. I don't know what's happening after that. I don't even inquire. I don't even, I don't even, I don't ever bug Brad or the team. Hey, what's next? And where's my storyline going? Man, that's not my job. My job is to deliver what it is you give me. Now, if you're going to give me another credit, guess what? Make that lemonade. Get those lemons. Get out the sugar, Don. We're making some lemonade, baby. <laughs> and so we just cultivated that relationship. Whatever we had, same with Jennifer. Sometimes we're in scenes, we don't even have lines. But I'm like, man, we're going to make this hot. Put some chemistry up in it. Put a look. You know what I'm saying? You got, I mean, what else you going to do? Let's go. Put some, man, make it. Make it do what it do, baby. Um, I, I think you missed your calling with an inspirational show. <laughs> I mean, I, Aaron, my God. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. 
this whole acting thing doesn't work out, you know. Hey, I'm down. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's really been uh, a pleasure to see you front and center. Some great performances coming out of this, this uh, turn of events on screen. This uh, September is going to mark a dozen years since you were introduced uh, to the B&B world. So looking back at this whole journey, you know, what is this run as Justin meant to you personally and professionally? Man, man, Justin has been my mainstay in that I don't have to go to acting class. Regardless of how many or few lines I have, I'm still doing what I came out here to do. I'm still accomplishing the actual goal of getting off of the plane from Washington, D.C., into California and making a living as an actor, which a lot of people don't understand that transition is a mother. It's one thing to be acting and you're waiting tables and bartending or catering or whatever else you may be doing in the mean real estate agent in the meantime, between time. But when it switches focus from those professions to now being an actor full time, that's a whole nother animal. Because as soon as they don't call me in, that we guess what that means my ass is unemployed that's what that means and then are you going to egoically not accept the unemployment because you feel a certain way about that i had to learn that well no i don't want to call them file you know unemployment because well you know man as soon as they say and that's a wrap on your ass is unemployed i've learned that and so b and b has filled in a lot of craters because you go through ebbs and flows. You go through ups and downs. When I'm unemployed and I wasn't working anywhere else on another show, you know, all I'm doing is creating craters. And then you get called in to do a show, whether it's B&B or some other show, and now that money is just filling in the crater. So you're, am I ever above ground, really? Now in my career, but since I've been working full time and COVID is over, because COVID kicked my ass, bro. Um, yeah, it's been one of them things where I've been able to see award shows, attend award shows, um, act, engulf pages, engulf, uh, not only dialogue, but changes to dialogue at the spur of a moment, watch other people at their profession, like, I don't understand how any of the women, I, that was the most magnificent thing to me in the world. Okay, we're talking and we're acting a fool during the uh, blocking right before we're about to shoot and then they call action and wait a minute, you're crying. Damn, where did you go? Like, why are we just talking and laughing? How do you have tears streaming down your face? Like, what are you? Where did you go to acting school? God dang. That's what B&B was. You know I'm thinking? I got, come on, I got Catherine Kelly Lane. You know, teardrop, like she carried a teardrop in her eye duck, just, you know, just in case. Somebody give her the wrong tea or the coffee at Starbucks, she just drop one on your ass, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> you know, uh, Heather Tom, what? Stop playing. Like, are you kidding me? This was like the best acting class ever. If you see an actor and they do something that's bomb, steal it. You steal it and put your spin on it. Watch how they handle themselves on set when they have a whole bunch of dialogue. Are they a-holes? Are they cool? Do they speak to the crew? Are they better than the crew? 
all of that. It's so much. It's never a, a nothing moment. There's never a dull moment. It's always something you could be learning, something you could be watching. So for B&B and Justin, they gave me that for 11 years. Well, it's been great to see Justin where he is today. We look forward to seeing everything that's coming next. And we thank you for all your time today and for joining us and getting to know more about you. Thank you guys for even taking interest because you could interview somebody else. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Aaron. Have a great day. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you to Aaron D. Spears for being our guest. If you like this podcast, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to pick up a new issue on sale now and come back next week for another podcast. Mm-hmm.